uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father, we're grateful uh, for each Sunday as we gather on the first day of the week, uh, remembering the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But on this one in particular, we ask for special grace that we might uh, focus our attention particularly, and that by being again convinced of the resurrection of Jesus and all that it means, that we would leave this place today encouraged, refreshed, with great hope. So please help us now as we listen to this word and think it through. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, please. The book of Hebrews in chapter 13, I want to read a very familiar passage to us, verses 20 and 21. So Hebrews in chapter 13, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to be glory forever and ever. Amen. I say that's a familiar passage to us because it's a benediction. It's one that we use quite often at the end of our services. Uh, I chose it this week for obvious reasons, the little expression about Christ being raised from the dead, but but also to provide a bit of continuity. Last week we considered uh, a different benediction as we were coming to a close of of our consideration of Second Corinthians. We took up that last uh, that last sentence uh, in that letter, uh, and it was a benediction. And you might remember it went: "The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all." Now remember. When we're talking about a benediction, we're not talking about a prayer that we're praying, but we're actually talking about something that's declared to us. In the Old Testament, it was by the priests, but declared to us really ultimately from God. And a benediction is a good word from God. And and we're to take that good word from God and take it upon ourselves as, as, as if it's God's very name upon us. That the very name upon us is to, to shape us. Uh, last week it was quite easy to see that we had the name of God on us because it was the name of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and when we take the name of God upon us, the blessing, the content of the, of the, of the benediction is the meaning that we're to take with us. For instance, last week we, uh, we declared the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is, and I hope this was true for you, and if it wasn't this past week, I hope it is this next week, that when you're going through your day, that you receive this blessing, and you know that everything that you receive comes through the grace, the gift, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it's not up to your earning it, your merit, but God is present with you, because of Jesus, because of his merit, because of who he is. And you are the recipient of that grace. So God is with you through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also upon you is the love of God. That means that all that happens to us in the course of a day comes 
through a God who loves us. He's sovereign over all things. He rules and reigns, but he's the one who loves us. And so whatever happens during the course of a day, during the course of a week, during the course of our lives, those of us who know him and have his presence and are blessed, therefore, by him, live with this name of God upon us, this benediction, know that God loves us. And that we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That is, that we are joined together with God by the Holy Spirit and with each other, that we're not alone. Why that took me 45 minutes, I don't know, last week. But that's the sense of it. So that's a benediction. This is a benediction as well. And we're to wear it in the same kind of way. We're to take the name of God upon us, his presence declared, I'm with you, and here's who I am, and thus, this is who you are. Now notice the blessing that's conferred upon believers in Jesus. First of all, he says that you have the God of peace. That is, to be blessed in this way means that we're people with whom God has made peace. So when the blessing of God's peace, the God of peace is upon us, when we wear that, when we take that upon ourselves, it means that we can rest assured that we have peace with God because... We're people with whom God has made peace. We'll unpack that in a minute. And then second, we're people whose great shepherd is Jesus. So if you receive this blessing in faith in Jesus, first of all, you know you have peace with God because he's made it. Second of all, you should know that your great shepherd, that is the overseer of your life, is Jesus himself. And thirdly, to know that at every moment and every, t- uh, and every day, that God is at work equipping you. That is, he's equipping you with everything good for doing his will. So he calls us to follow him. He calls us to obey him. He calls us, and he says, I'll equip you. And the blessing of God, the presence of God upon us in this blessing is that he's doing that. He's always equipping us with every good thing for doing his will. And he's working in us all the time that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And so to take this blessing, to receive it in Jesus' name, is to take his name upon yourself. That name being the God of peace, the great shepherd Jesus and his equipping within you. Now, we say, the very beginning of the blessing, the first blessing, is that God is the God of peace. Now, that's a very common name. If you read through the scripture, God is often referred to as a God of, a God of peace. Uh, you might remember in the book of Judges, Gideon, if you know that story, I don't have time to go through it. Gideon found himself in a very hostile situation. And, and, and God came to him in such a way that he said, oh, Your name is peace. Oh, I needn't be anxious. I can have confidence in the midst because your name is peace. The blessing that the uh, priests, Aaron and his sons, were told to put upon the people, the very first benediction, uh, is that the people 
would have peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Jesus was given the name, the Prince of Peace. When he was born, the angels shouted, Peace on earth. Jesus said, My peace I give to you. Peace be with you. There's a sense in which you see this is a very common expression. Paul often in his letters spoke of the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we hear the author of Hebrews lay out for us this blessing and say, first this, the God of peace, we realize, all right, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's the God who makes peace. He's the God who makes peace. And to receive this blessing means that you're one with whom God has made peace. Think about peace for a minute. Now, oftentimes we think of peace in, in this sense, in a negative sense. Uh, we, we talk about peace being the lack of or the absence of hostility. That's peace. Or peace being the lack of or the absence of disorder. You know, when things are orderly, when things are arranged correctly, rightly, there's a sense of peace. Um, moms say that to their kids all the time. Clean up your rooms. Why? She wants peace. In the room, some sense of order, not chaos, right? And so we, we think of, of, of peace uh, politically. We think of a, of a lack of hostility among nations or no terrorism is a, sort of the way we think of it these days. Peace there. We think of peace in the natural order uh, where there's no tornadoes or tsunamis or, or bad weather or snow on Easter. Uh, uh, we think peace, right? In the world, everything's arranged Rightly, we think of peace in relationships where there's no hostility, no anger, uh, uh, where the relationship is arranged properly, where there's proper respect. There's, there's peace in that relationship. Think about peace within, and we realize that there are times when we don't have peace because we're conflicted, where we have decisions to make and we don't know which way to go. There's a lack of peace. There's conflict within or there might be feelings of guilt, or there might be feelings of anger, or there might be things that are just discombobulated within and not arranged rightly. And so we lack peace uh, within. Now, if you remember back to Genesis 1 and 2, you realize that at creation, there was peace. Everything was arranged rightly. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, God creates Adam and Eve, They're rightly related to each other. They're rightly related to God. They're rightly related to the creation around them. All is well in that sense. There's well-being everywhere. And yet something happened that disturbed the peace. And you know what happened if you're a Bible reader, you know, by Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve decided to go their own way. They sinned against God. They rebelled against him. And peace was destroyed first and foremost, peace between human beings and God. Uh, Human beings decided to go their own way. They ran from God. All of a sudden, God became a threat to them, not a friend to them, if you will. And so the peace between human beings and God was broken from our perspective. And we began to go our own way. In fact, even in the New Testament, Jesus said that men love darkness rather than light. In a sense, meaning they'd rather be in their own dark corners than in the light with God. Doing that which is their own thing rather than 
following after God. And that disturbed, if you destroyed this peace with God, the prophet Isaiah said that we're separated from God by our iniquities, by our sins, you see, our rebellion. And, and that creates, of course, a, a sense of hostility, lack of peace among, among people. Because when you have individuals who think each themselves to be gods, then you have a clash of gods all the time. A clash of kingdoms. My kingdom versus your kingdom. My way versus your way. And, and we see that there's a lack of peace. Things are out of sorts. But that isn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem isn't our problem with God running from him. The biggest problem is God's, and we could put it like this, hostility towards us. Because you see, once we've sinned against God, we incur what the Bible calls his wrath, his judgment against us, which is his righteous response to our rebellion against him. Once there's a lack of peace, not simply our way to him, but his, God's, towards us, this wrath of God upon us. And you might think, well, you know, that sounds fairly severe. I mean, why does God get all upset about this? I mean, we only did this or that. Well, if, if we understand the holiness of God, we can understand the drama of our sin against him. I've used this illustration before, but it's helpful to me. If I painted a painting, and, and most of my painting is done on drywall, uh, one color at a time. And uh, if you spilled coffee on my painting, that wouldn't be that bad, right? It might improve it. Uh, but if you took a Picasso and you spilled the same coffee on that, it would be a huge deal. Why? Not because of the coffee, but because of the value of what was destroyed or hurt. And see, God is so holy that even if we could measure it like this, the smallest speck is devastating. So you can only imagine our rebellion against him, what that causes. And so he's right to judge. He's right to condemn. And so the question is, how then will peace ever be restored? I can't do it because I'm running. I can't do it because I'm rebelling. I can't do it because his judgment is upon me. And if I receive it, then it's an eternal judgment. And and the way that peace is restored, he puts it, is through the blood of the eternal covenant. What's that? Well, we think about blood, we think about Jesus, and we think about his death. And so in this death of Jesus, there's a making of peace. In fact, the author of Hebrews quotes um, the prophet Jeremiah about this, this, the blood of the eternal covenant uh, in the New Testament, it's often referred to simply as the New Covenant. If you flip back in Hebrews to chapter 8, we can just see it there in the middle of verse 8. Hebrews in chapter 8, middle of verse 8. Um, quoting the prophet Isaiah, the author of Hebrews writes, Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This new covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant that will bring this new covenant into existence, is one where God will change our, our hearts and minds and put his laws there so that we're inclined towards him. He will be reconciled to us to be uh, our God, we, his people, will know him, and not the least of which, our sins will be uh, forgiven. Do you remember? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he was at that last Passover meal with them, uh, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant shed for many For the forgiveness of sins. Was that new covenant. The blood of the covenant. His blood. Would ratify. This new covenant. Forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation. With God. Transformed hearts. And lives. And it's. An eternal covenant because it was in the mind of God before the foundations of the world. It was in the plan of God before the foundations of the world. And it's eternal, which means at last nothing can break it. And thus the author of Hebrews would say that our salvation is eternal, our redemption is eternal, our inheritance is eternal. Nothing can take it from us. It, it is for all time. And you see, the, the blood of the covenant is what ratifies it. The blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Because in his death, uh, he brings purification for sins. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3, the author of Hebrews is speaking to us about Jesus and about this covenant and his death. He writes, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. In other words, what Jesus did when he died was he made purification for sins. He was making peace between God and us. And then chapter 2 and verse 14, we read this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, that is Jesus, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, big word, you know what it means, I hope. You've been coming here for too long. You know that it means that the wrath of God is exhausted, is taken away. Our sins 
paid for, no case against us in glory at all. Then chapter 5 and verse 1. He writes, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what Jesus did as our high priest. He made a sacrifice for our sin. And then in chapter 9 and verse 12, we read this. That he that is Jesus... I'll give you a minute. Come on. I know your fingers are cold. That's good. Um, Chapter 9, verse 12. He, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal uh, redemption. This blood of the eternal covenant. Chapter 9, verse 15. Just a few verses south of there. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise, promised eternal inheritance. That's what we receive. Then verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his blood. He gave his life so that the ransom could be paid so that we would be forgiven our sins. Verse 28, so Christ, having uh, been offered once to bear the sins of many. That's what he did when he died. He bore the sins of many. Uh, chapter 10, verse 4. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it's not impossible for the blood of the Son of God to take away sins. So St. Paul could summarize it like this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, God has made peace. Sometimes when a person's loved one or friend is dying, and that person isn't sure if the dying one knows the Lord, they'll come to me as a pastor or one of the pastors on our staff or perhaps one of our elders, and they'll say, could you go visit them? I want to know if they've made their peace with God. What I want to say is no. (laughs) I don't, because I'm nice. Uh, That would be rude to say that. Because the point isn't, have they made their peace with God? But do they know God has made peace with us? You see, when I hear that expression, and and I know what people mean by it, when I hear the expression, have you made your peace with God? It sounds like there's something you need to do in order to make your peace with God. But, But what we need to do is receive the peace that's been made for us by God. Do you see the difference? I don't do anything to make peace with God. I simply receive the peace that he's made. I can't do anything to make peace with God. All I can do is make it worse. But Jesus, by the blood of the eternal covenant, has made peace with God for us. So what I'd like to say to people, so if you ever ask me this, What I want to say to you is what I'll do is I will go and declare to your person you love that peace has been made through Jesus Christ. And I will urge them to do nothing but receive it. To trust that though sinners they be, Jesus died that we might have peace with God, that we might live. And so it's that peace with God that we 
that we declare. And that through the blood of the eternal covenant. Do you realize that when you've been in glory, when I've been in glory, when I've been in heaven, when you've been in heaven for a thousand years, we'll be no more forgiven then than we are right now. We'll be no more justified then than we are right now. We'll be no more reconciled to God than we are right now. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus had made peace and he shouts to us, receive it. Here it is. The very peace of God. And believers in Jesus, you see, we walk around all the time with this blessing. We walk around reminding ourselves that the God of peace has made peace through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that that's true? <laughs> well, it's that expression uh, that now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant. It's the resurrection of Jesus that's the confirming fact. It's the resurrection of Jesus that's the big deal here because it's the resurrection of Jesus is what gives us confidence to know, assurance to know, that by the blood of the eternal covenant, he's made peace. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus is the very center, or you, if you will, we put it a different way, the climax, if you will, uh, of, of this great story of redemption. In the sense that if it hadn't happened, then nothing else would be true. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, where do they, where do they end? They end with the resurrection of Jesus and appearances in three of the four. But the resurrection of Jesus, he's alive. That's where it all moves. Read through the book of Acts and the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. What's, what's the key part there? Jesus, who you killed, has been raised. That's the point of it, you see. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians and 15, that if Jesus hasn't been raised, then it's all for naught, this preaching and this faith that we have. For instance, verse 14, he writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For the dead aren't raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that has died in Christ, have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then he goes on, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. See, that, that's the proof of it. The proof that all that he said what happened, all that the apostles said happened when he died is true is because he was raised. Because you see, when he was raised, it was proof that the father had accepted the sacrifice of the son, that is, his sacrifice for our sins. I mean, throughout history, people have grappled with uh, the, the expression in Psalm 22, which Jesus speaks from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a logical struggle. You have to ask the question, why would the father forsake the son? I mean, Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus always did the will of his father, always thought his father's thoughts, always spoke his father's words. So why is it 
that the father would ever forsake the son. Well, it finally dawns on us that he did, did so not because of the son's sins, not because of Jesus, but because of ours. He was actually bearing the guilt of our sin on the cross. And then do you realize that once he paid for our sins, he was free to go. There was nothing that would bind him to death. And so when he was raised, it was a big shout that said, sins have been paid. It's finished. Not only that, it was the evidence that he was the son of God. Romans chapter 1 says that he was declared with power through the resurrection of the dead to be the very son of God. This death could not hold him. He was victorious over death, obviously, because death couldn't keep him. So then we know by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that sins are indeed forgiven, that peace has been Made. Now we mustn't at all uh, over spiritualize this resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't just this sort of ghostly spiritual kind of resurrection. It was a real body with which Jesus was resurrected. Uh, and it wasn't that his old body was just resuscitated. This is a new eternal body. Yes, it resembled who he was before. They recognized him, but there was something about this body that could live for all eternity. When they were looking at the, at, at the risen Jesus, they were looking at the end of the world. They were looking at the age to come. This Jesus raised from the dead. And it's this very same Jesus raised from the dead who is our great shepherd. You remember, turn back to John chapter 10. In verse 11. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my my Father. Jesus didn't act like the hired Shepherd, the shepherd that runs when the wolf comes, when the wrath of God came, and Jesus took it for us, he did not flee, he did not run that vivid scene. We read every Good Friday, Jesus in the garden. Praying earnestly. If there's any way that this cup could pass, please, Lord, take it from me. If there's any, any way this cup could pass, we say, well, Jesus, what's your problem? 
Other people have gone to their death with, with, with seemingly more courage than that. I mean, well, what's the big deal about this? Well, the big deal about this was he knew what was to take place. He wasn't just going to die. But he was going to take upon himself the wrath of God for us. And at that moment, he didn't run like the hireling would run. He stayed right there. And he went through it and he took that wolf, if you will, for us. So that we might, so that we might live. And now you see, he's our great shepherd. That means that he always looks out for us. That he always protects us. That he's always providing for us. The way the Bible puts it is, is like this. Again, if I may cite um, the author of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25. Familiar verse to us. Consequently, he that is Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And to make intercession means to defend. To make intercession means to help. He's always watching, always defending, always providing us. He's our great shepherd. I mean, we read in the scripture that the Lord gives the church shepherds, but no shepherd given to the church is like the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's always watching. He's always protecting. Always providing. And as long as he lives, we are safe. And the good news is, he'll always live. Because he lives to make intercession for us. Because the Bible uses this imagery of sheep and shepherds, I, I've spent a lot of, of my time thinking what it might, must be to be a sheep. Uh, vulnerable, needing everything. And I suspect if I'm a sheep and I'm in the pasture and, and I hear a wolf howling, it would make me afraid. There's lots of things in my life that makes me, make me afraid as I think of them. But I think if I'm a sheep, my first glance should be to the shepherd. Is he there? And if he's there, I can just go about my business. And the same is true for us. Whatever comes, whatever difficulty, whatever fears, our first glance ought to be to Jesus. Is he there? Is he watching? Is he interceding? And if he is, I can breathe. Because I know that he's the great, he's the great shepherd. And then finally, this blessing, we're also at all the time, every single minute of every single day, he says to us, if you receive this blessing, because you're a believer in Jesus, then always this God of peace and the great shepherd will be equipping us with every good uh, thing that we need to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Uh, that, that may call to mind that passage in, in um, Philippians in chapter 2 that we think of from time to time. Verse 12, Philippians 2. Apostle writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, never forget that this God who's made peace for you and with you. And this Jesus who's watching over you and interceding for you all the time is at the same time equipping you. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. He's equipping you to do all the things to which he's called you to do. He's called us to obey him. He's called us to serve him in various ways. Which many times means loving and serving one another. It means following him in perhaps difficult situations. He says, all the time I'll be equipping you. I'll be equipping you by my word. All scriptures God breathed. It's profitable for the man of God to be equipped for every good work. And so he's always, by his word, equipping us. And by his spirit within us, working it in us. That we can work it out. So we can always know, no matter what we're called to, that he will Help us, he'll be equipping us to obey, equipping us to follow him. For some of us, we're called into vocations where we desire because we know God has called us to live with integrity. And yet in the midst of our vocational life, there's, there's temptations not to live with integrity. In fact, there could be even reinforcements and rewards not to be a person of integrity. And yet we're called to live with integrity. And so we have to trust that our great shepherd is equipping us. To obey him. To follow him. Some of us are called to bear with each other in relationships that are very difficult. Whether they're in family, whether they're in work, whether they're with acquaintances, friendships. And we have to trust that the God who's made peace and Jesus, our good, great shepherd, who's always looking out for us, interceding for us, helping us, that he'll be equipping us to deal with every relationship which we find ourselves to follow after him. Each of us, I trust, could list your ongoing and troubling, besetting sins. And we have to trust that even after the Ten thousandth time that we've asked for forgiveness, prayed that God would help us, that he, is, he really is equipping us. He really is working in us. We have to trust him. And he says, why wouldn't I trust you? I've, I've made peace. I've, I've taken the wrath of God for you, so trust me, I really am looking out for you. In all these ways, he calls us to bear fruit. He calls us to share the gospel, sometimes in very difficult situations. And yet we have to trust he's going to equip us and work in us every good thing for doing his will. And all of this for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this Easter Sunday, take this blessing. On this Easter Sunday, dads, speak this blessing upon your children and your wives, your families. Moms, speak it upon your children. Wear this blessing, take this blessing. Know that the God of peace
peace has made peace. Receive it. Know that for those for whom God has made peace who have received it, that Jesus himself is your great shepherd. Always watching. Always defending. Always helping. Always providing. Always equipping. Always working in you. Never, never, never leave home without this blessing. Right? Never go anywhere without this blessing. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me, for us, that we would take, receive this blessing, that it would not fall to the ground, but simply fall upon us, that we would receive it and believe it and walk in it. And Father, you're the God of peace. We give you thanks for making peace with us, for us, through Jesus. Not only could we not have done it, we would not have done it. But you have enabled us to live in it. You've called us to live holy lives, lives that honor, reflect you. We live in a world that tempts us to go our own way, the ways of others. The evil one reinforces these temptations. Still, we know sin residing within us to follow these other ways. Strengthen us, we pray. Equip us. Work in us. To resist these temptations so that we may follow after you and you alone. Work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. Father, many of us find weaknesses in our own lives and difficulties in relationships. Marriage, sometimes family relationships, friendships. Heal wounds, I pray. Give us grace to love, restore relationships. Equip us, God, with everything good for doing your will. Many experience weakness in body and sickness that slows us, disease that debilitates us, threatens to take our lives. Bring healing, we pray. Bring an awareness of your presence with us through these times that we may know, good shepherd, that you're defending us and helping us and providing for us and blessing us. Some grieve the loss of those they love. On days like today, those moments of grief can be more poignant than other times. So please provide comfort. Some of us are lonely. Bring friendship and companionship. Give an abiding sense of your presence in our lives. For you're the God of peace. You're our great shepherd. Work in us. And in this world in which we live, there's great uncertainty Politically, certainly, terrorists strike terror within us. Grant us faith that the risen Christ rules and reigns in wisdom and power and love for his people, that we might live in peace 
And so, Father, we lay our very lives before you. And we ask these things and so much more. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.